Try that again. Good morning, everybody. <laughs> oh man, this is one of those one of those mornings where um, uh, it's just a little extra exciting, right? Uh, you lose hours of sleep. The stage is weird. The screen is small, and uh, I don't even know. Yeah, I don't even know where I am anymore. So. Uh, but I appreciate the uh, the spirit in this room today. I feel like there's definitely been a sense of like, let's just figure it out and go with the flow and uh, really grateful for you guys being willing to, to be here and join us uh, this morning. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor here. I had nothing to do with the selection of the serving spotlight. Just want to make that clear. That was all uh, the children's ministry staff wanting to honor Amy and Denise, and they have been doing a really great job, as have all of our other uh, folks who serve in that uh, capacity uh, week in and week out here. So thank you guys for doing that. Um, just one more uh, quick thing and then I'm going to pray. But we are, uh, again, having Discover Discovery class starting today. So if uh, you want to be a part of that and, and find out more about who we are, if you're new uh, or this is only your second or third time, we'd love to have you uh, be a part of the conversation about who we are as a church and then if you've been around for a while, and I've said this a couple times now, but I, I want to continue to reiterate it, our hope is that everybody who calls Discovery Home will have an opportunity to go through this class before the year is over. So if you uh, feel like, oh man, I already know a lot of stuff, just come anyway. I think it's going to be really good for us to get on the same page and, and to continue moving forward uh, uh, as a whole church, uh, being able to go through that class together. All right, so let's pray and then we will get into it. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of this day, for um, continuing to uh, remind us that uh, the church is here to point people to you. And, and this is not about us or about how great and awesome we are, but a, a constant reminder that our uh, role, our calling is to point people to the good news of Jesus and what you have done through him. Father, I pray now as we turn our attention to Scripture that you would uh, challenge us today, that you would um, take whatever worries and concerns that we have and bring with us into this space and hold them for us so that we can respond uh, to the words uh, that Jesus would speak to us about this moment right here and right now and what you want us to do. God, the call to share the good news of Jesus with people is is scary maybe, uh, intimidating, it's certainly a challenge, and yet there is a desperate need in our world for the good news of Jesus to be shared. And so would you inspire us today to do that, um, to take what we've seen and experienced and to offer that to others who need it. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you have a Bible, open to Matthew chapter 9. And if you need a Bible, raise your hand. One of our ushers will come around and make sure you have one. We are wrapping up the third movement in our journey through Matthew. So uh, if you've been around, you kind of know how this conversation has been going. We uh, are spending 40 weeks in Matthew's telling of the Jesus story. And we've split this up into seven parts or seven Movements And today is the end of movement three. And this particular section has been a lot of fun uh, to spend some time in. We've seen all these great stories of Jesus doing amazing and miraculous things. And, and this is not just about what Jesus is doing. This is about who we want to be as a church, right? A lot of foundational stuff here for us as a community. In this kingdom of right relationships, we've seen particularly in this movement, that there is a new way to deal with 
sin, our, our sin and rebellion against God that separates us from him and from each other is, uh, is now um, answered through his grace and mercy and forgiveness. These are the currencies of this kingdom. And what grace, mercy, and forgiveness does is it opens the kingdom community up to all kinds of people. And this is an idea that we've been calling church for the rest of us. This is the kind of community that we want to be, a healing, loving, generous, graceful community with plenty of room for notorious sinners and tax collectors, really room for all of us, space for kinship to be created between us despite whatever our differences might be. Now this morning we have a very uh, large chunk of scripture. We're going to start in verse 35, go all the way through the end of chapter 10. And I get really excited about uh, one of these moments because I I think there's this tendency, especially if you've been in church for a long time, if you've been a a part of church culture, there's this tendency to think that the best way to approach scripture is to take take it in small chunks. But that actually is a fairly recent development in church history. For most of the 2,000 years that the church has been in existence, we've been reading Scripture communally in large sections, reading large portions, even whole chapters and books at a time. And what I love about that is it gets us caught up in the larger flow of the story of Scripture. This modern desire to dissect and label each little section would be weird to most people who have uh, attended and been a participant in church life for the last 2,000 years. So certainly there are moments of time where it's good to focus on a couple of verses where we need to get really specific. There are certain passages of Scripture that are only a couple of verses, but for the most part, we want to stay big. We want to get caught up in this bigger flow, the broad sweep of God's story. We want our imaginations to be fired. We want our intellects to be immersed, not just because we want more information, but because we desire transformation. All right? And so sometimes we need to take these really large looks at at big, big portions of Scripture. Now today we begin again in verse 35, and, and this is also, not only is this going to be a large chunk, but this is also a big hinge point in the story as Matthew is telling it. We've seen that Matthew structures his book around five significant teachings that Jesus gives, what scholars call five discourses. And uh, a lot of scholars see a connection there between uh, Matthew and his Jewish audience. The, the Old Testament, first five books of our scripture, their five books of the law, are mirrored in these five discourses. In January, we spent a, a significant amount of time in the first of these teachings, one of Jesus' most famous teachings, the Sermon on the mount. And we're going to see some echoes of that teaching in this discourse today, but also a lot of new stuff as well. Now, before we get into the specifics of it, I want to uh, help set the scene for this uh, just a little bit, all right? We live right now in a moment of history here in 21st century America where we recognize that as a society, we are deeply divided. Reporters Dante Cheney and Sally Bronson, they wrote an article after the recent election, election season, about how the only thing that we can agree on is that we are deeply divided. That's the one thing that unites us, that we don't agree about anything. <laughs> and, and I think one of the things that's interesting about this particular moment is not that there is this division in our society, but that we, we have this 
thought or idea that this is somehow new or unique. But all throughout history, people have had different answers to the big questions of life and have wrestled and argued and debated about those things. And certainly Jesus' time, first century Palestine, was just as divided as we are, probably even more divided. The, the Jews at that time lived under Roman occupation and rule. And if you know your Old Testament story, you know that uh, four or five hundred years before the time of Jesus, the people of Israel had been uh, overtaken and, and exiled by foreign powers. These empires who had come in, defeated their king, taken them off to distant lands, and they had been scattered all throughout uh, the Middle East and even into parts of Europe. And there was a, a bit of returning that had happened. For the most part, there was this deep sense of, of we are separated, we are scattered, and we are certainly living now under a whole new structure, this thing called the Roman Empire. So they had a strong desire for freedom, to see their people reunited, to once again live in their land as a people with their own government, without outside interference and domination. Now, the interesting thing that was happening during the time of Jesus is that the Roman Empire was in this process of divinizing its power. This was a way to further consolidate the power that they already had, the control that they already had. And so you had emperors like Augustus, who was the emperor around the time that Jesus was born, giving himself the title, the divine emperor Augustus, even giving himself the title, son of God. And for the Jewish people who believed that they worshiped the one true living God, it was shocking and it was offensive to see the Roman Empire put themselves in the place of God. So the political and religious questions of their day, and these were not different questions by any means, the big question was, how do we respond to a ruling power that is idolizing itself? How do we respond to a power that has put itself in the place of God? That was their big question. They had four basic answers to that question, four different groups that would argue ceaselessly about how to respond to the reality that they were in. I want to share a little bit about each one of these groups. So in one corner, you had a group called the Zealots. Now the Zealots were known for, for desiring violent Rebellion. The thought here was, oh, we're oppressed because we haven't fought back. If only we had the faith and the courage to launch a rebellion and God would be on our side, we'd defeat the Romans like David defeated Goliath. So at one corner you had the Zealots, and the total opposite corner you had a group called the Herodians. This group included a, a subgroup called the Sadducees, and, and remember that name, the Sadducees will come up a little bit later on. In Matthew, the Herodians supported the puppet ruler Herod. We've seen Herod already in Matthew chapter 2. He's the guy that kills all the babies when Jesus is born, so not a good guy. He was set up as this in-between ruler between the Roman Empire and the Jewish people. And so the Herodians thought, man, what we need to do is not rebel. In fact, that would be stupid. To fight the Roman Empire would be suicide. So let's cooperate, let's play the political game, and try our, uh, to make the best of this situation that we are in. In another corner, you had the Essenes. This group saw themselves as being sort of enlightened. They, they were kind of the intellectuals of this conversation, and they thought the whole system was rotten. So they retreated out into the desert to create their own alternative society, sort of a, 
uh, a prototype of the Amish, if you will. And then finally, there was a fourth group known as the Pharisees. And we've seen these characters a bit already. They, they are and will continue to be Jesus' primary opposition. Now, one of the reasons Jesus butts heads with the Pharisees so much and so much more than some of these other groups is because the Pharisees' answer to this question, what do we do with Roman occupation, was to hope for a Savior. They believed that a Messiah would come who would lead them out of oppression. And in particular, this Messiah would come if and only if they could achieve a bit of purity or a level of purity through fidelity to the Old Testament law. And they would say things like this, if only there were more righteous people like us, then all of our problems would go away. So you had these four groups arguing, debating, fighting about uh, how to answer this question and how they should be thinking and responding to the situation that they were in. It led to great division, not just among those four groups, but to the families and friends of people who got involved in this conversation. Great division in their society at that time. And so it's into this context, into this mess, if you will, that Jesus comes teaching and healing and proclaiming a kingdom of heaven, a kingdom uh, vision so different from the other visions of that time. I want you to keep some of these groups and divisions in mind here as we get into our text. So Matthew 9, verse 35, Jesus goes through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. A lot of familiar things going on here in this scene. Jesus is healing. Jesus is teaching. He's proclaiming the good news of this kingdom of heaven. Crowds are showing up. People are responding. The disciples are there taking all of it in. But here, Matthew pauses for a moment to pull the curtain back and give us some insight into Jesus' thought process. We know that Jesus cares very deeply about people. We know that he believes he is the Messiah. We know he has authority and power. Matthew has been doing a masterful job of demonstrating this, showing this to us. You guys remember your freshman English class or doing creative writing? What does your teacher tell you to do? Show, don't tell, right? That's what Matthew's been doing. He's been showing us all of these things about Jesus. But here he pauses to tell us that underneath all of this activity, Jesus is moved and motivated by compassion. Jesus is moved and motivated by compassion. Now, compassion literally means to suffer with. Jesus feels with. He empathizes with people. He sees all the hurt and the suffering, and he feels it deeply. And specifically here, he feels the pain of poor leadership. He looks at the crowds and he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. These are, are people who have been given bad answers to very deep and very good questions. Now in Matthew, there are about 70 direct references to an Old Testament promise being fulfilled by Jesus. And, and Matthew is very direct in this. He'll say something along the lines of, and this happened to fulfill the promise that was written by Isaiah or whoever the, the prophet happens to be. 
about 70 of those moments. But there are many, many other moments that are uh, not as explicitly connected, but are, are, in fact, deeply connected to something that's happening in the Old Testament. This is one of those moments, the Old Testament, all over Matthew's story, when Jesus looks at the crowds and sees harassed people, sheep, without a shepherd. There are direct connections to passages like Zechariah 10 and Jeremiah 23, and especially a passage from Ezekiel 34. I want us to read here for just a moment. Ezekiel 34, beginning in verse 2, where it says this, Son of man. Now, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, this should immediately set off some bells for you. We've seen Jesus use this title a few times now, Son of Man. It was a phrase, a title that was just full of imagery and promise about a Messiah, about the Savior who would come and bring them freedom. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. What has Jesus been doing over these last couple of chapters? Strengthening the weak, healing the sick, binding up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. No one searched or looked for them. Now we might expect Jesus to say something here like, <clears throat> Ta-da, I'm here, like I'm going to do this now. But, but notice what he says. He says, the harvest is ready. Ask for more workers. The harvest is ready. Ask for more workers. I need help. Even Jesus, the Son of God, Son of Man, God in the flesh, needed help. As he went around Galilee doing this incredible work of healing and teaching, he realized there are so many people who need, who are desperate for good news. And he realizes that even with all of the power and authority that he has, he cannot do it by himself. This is one of the, the craziest things about the God that we worship and serve. He limits him, himself in order to invite participation. So Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. A couple things we need to say about this. One is that Jesus gave the 12 disciples authority. Again, a word, a theme that's been coming up over and over again here in our journey through Matthew. This theme has been building for several chapters. We've seen Jesus demonstrate a unique kind of authority. It's recognized by people as being, oh, this is different than any other kind of authority. He's demonstrated it very powerfully in a number of different ways. But here, he begins to give that authority away. And this is one of the fundamental markers of the kingdom of heaven, one of the ways that it is radically different than other kingdoms. Authority and power are given away. 
Now, in our, our anti-authoritarian, hyper-individualistic, 21st century American worldview, one way that we do resonate with Jesus is in thinking that he is anti-authoritarian, right? Jesus came to stick it to the man. We love that about him. But the reality is, is Jesus did not come to abolish authority or power. He definitely uh, set himself in opposition to certain power structures. But in his kingdom, power and authority are given in order to be given away. We are to be generous with whatever power and authority we might have. And that must have been a crazy realization for the disciples who to this point have been almost completely passive observers. And and to all of a sudden be told, I give you authority to go do these things. These things that I've been doing that you've been seeing, you get to go do this. What? So he gives authority to them and he gives authority to 12 of them. And this is an important thing to take note of. Why does Jesus pick 12? Scott McKnight writes, Jesus chose 12, not 10 and not 50 disciples. Central to the term 12 is the covenant that God had made with Israel. Over and over in the Old Testament, 12 means the covenant people of God in their fullness and totality. Nearly everyone at the time of Jesus, those four different groups, believe that the 12 tribes would be reunited. Judah and Israel would once again be the 12 tribe people of God under the rule of the Messiah. 12 is not about um, the ideal-sized small group. It's not about a manageable team for Jesus to lead. And then the, the... Male part of it is not about some sort of male domination thing. This is about Jesus connecting what he is doing to, the, again, the big sweep of Scripture, the Old Testament promise that one day the 12 tribes would be reunited under the rule of the Messiah. This is a deeply symbolic decision that Jesus makes here to name and send out these 12, fulfilling the Old Testament promise of Israel, but in a radically new and fresh way. A new team, a new kind of people, new wine and new wineskins, a new community that will one day be called the church. Now the 12 that Jesus picks are very interesting. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First Simon, who's called Peter and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out. Jesus' team represents some of those significant divisions of their time. And then this is a disparate group of 12 in a lot of other ways. Jesus chooses educated and uneducated, blue-collar and white-collar workers, good citizens, notorious sinners, and tax collectors, politically conservative, and politically liberal. To put it into our context, Jesus took farm workers and Wall Street investors, high school dropouts and Ph.D. candidates, felons and activists, Democrats and Republicans, and sent them out. And that is what that word apostle means, to be sent, sent ones. 
Don't miss this. What united them was not theology or doctrine or politics or that they all rooted for the same sports team. What united them was Jesus and the mission that he sends them out on. Go seek the harvest. Go heal and teach about the kingdom of heaven. Here we encounter another Jesus paradox. On the one hand, Jesus is the Prince of Peace, the one who reconciles all things and all people to himself, a unifying force. But as we will see in a moment, and even foreshadowed on his team with the choosing of Judas, not everyone is going to be on board with this. There's still going to be division and separation. So Jesus unites and reconciles these disparate parts into a new whole, but at the same time creates a new uh, a split, if you will, because there are going to be those who are for his kingdom and there will be those who are against it. And this is an important but hard application for us as a church. On the one hand, we are united by Jesus' mission and we do not seek agreement on all things here. The unifying factor for our community is not teams or theology or doctrine or politics. Now for some of you, depending on your church background, that might be a hard thing to hear. But that is not what brings us together here at Discovery. What unites us, as we talked about last Sunday, is our desperation for Jesus and for people to discover that Jesus is good news. This is even reflected in our heritage as a Restoration Movement church. If that's unfamiliar to you, just a little bit of history. The Restoration Movement started in the 1820s and 30s when churches were splitting. And this is where you get First Baptist and Second Baptist and North and South, all these kinds of, uh, of splits. And the Restoration Movement began as a unifying movement, popularized the phrase, in essentials, unity, in opinions, liberty, and in all things, love or charity. And again, Jesus models this for us in his team. However, the unity of his team was not perfect. Judas decided in the end that this kingdom, this mission, wasn't the way. This was not the answer that he was looking for. Not even Jesus could get everyone on the same page. Not even this team would stay together. Again, this is a hard truth, especially relationally. We want everyone to sort of, you know, oh, let's all get together and be on the same page and it'll be great. But especially in our day and age, in our context where there are so many options and so many choice, choices, some people will go. Some things will become more important than the mission. But again, what unites us here is our passion for helping people discover the good news of Jesus. Now, uh, just a, a few thoughts on the actual teaching and instruction that Jesus gives to his team as he sends them out. Beginning in verse 5, Jesus says, Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. This is sort of a weird uh, parameter that Jesus puts on this mission. And I think it raises some questions for us. How does this apply to us today? Is Jesus speaking to all disciples or just to these 12 Disciples, And again, here's where reading Scripture, especially in broad strokes, can be so helpful. 
taken on its own. This is a strange commandment. But within the larger context that we've been looking at of Jesus seeing his people shepherdless, helpless, harassed, we see the continuity with the Old Testament story, the naming and calling of the 12 to be a new people, a new Israel. Of course Jesus would send them to Israel first. And when we consider the context of the whole book of Matthew, it ends with this great call to take the good news of Jesus to every nation. So there are some things here that are only for this particular moment in time. There are some things that I think apply beyond that, and we'll look at those uh, a little bit in just a moment. But Jesus here is specifically sending these 12 on a particular mission to a particular group of people. Now, starting in verse 16 and working our way through the end of the chapter, this is where things can be a little confusing because Jesus is sort of flipping back and forth between that present moment, the current mission, and then some things that will happen in the future, particularly after he has left the disciples. As we read our way through this, we see that the scope does open up to the Gentiles. We see that there are things that will happen to the disciples after Jesus is gone. There are echoes of what's come before from the Sermon on the Mount. Four times Jesus says, don't be afraid or don't worry. Four times Jesus refers to God as Father. And within all of his teaching, there is so much encouragement and inspiration and vision. He tells them that God's Spirit will be with them, will give them the words that they need to speak. He reminds them that God values them so deeply. He tells them that as they give themselves to this work, they will find life, they will find it abundantly and eternally. And that through their work and service, people will experience Jesus. There are also some pretty ominous words in here as well. Jail and beatings and rejection. And then when you get down to verse 34, this whole bit about swords and no peace. What is Jesus talking about here? Again, Jesus referring to the reality that his kingdom will come into conflict with other kingdoms. This is that division side of the paradox we just saw a moment ago. To choose Jesus' kingdom will mean saying no to other kingdoms, to Roman kingdoms, to even Israel's dream for a kingdom. No, uh, in our context, to an American kingdom, to a family kingdom, to a personal actualization kingdom, to a career kingdom. These things will come into conflict. Which points us to the larger truth here. There is a cost to joining Jesus' mission. Seeking Jesus and his kingdom first, it will cost us, some of us financially, some of us relationally. It might even cost us our lives. But rather than read this as a warning, I think we should read it simply as a statement of reality. This is how it will happen. When you give everything you have to follow Jesus and his mission, it will cost you. But it's important to note And to remember, this is exactly what Jesus did. This mission cost him everything. Here in Matthew chapter 10, he mentions the cross for the first time in verse 38. And this, of course, is what he came to do. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
So what do we do with this teaching, with this set of instructions for the 12 at this particular time on their first opportunity to participate in the mission? What from this applies to us as we go out and share the good news of Jesus with people today? I want to suggest four truths, I think, that inform our participation in Jesus' mission. And the first is this. There is still a need. There's still very much a need. There is a harvest waiting. There are sheep without shepherds. In our language, there are people that, are, that desperately need good news, who have been given bad answers to really good and really profound questions. In our time, the fastest growing spiritual category of people is a group called the nuns. And these are not sweet old ladies in a convent. Okay, these are our folks who have rejected religious systems. Who would say that they're spiritual but not religious. I feel very, very strongly that this is a, a huge part of our mission as a church. When I talk about church for the rest of us, when we talk through some of those values and dreams, a, a lot of the us's are nuns. People who have questions. People who have doubts, people who have been burned by church. Part of our mission is to help people discover the good news of Jesus, but I think that also part of our mission is to help people recover the good news of Jesus. To see that the church Jesus created can be and is a force for tremendous good, that the ways of Jesus certainly are costly, but that the only way uh, to find abundant true life is through him. This is who we are sent to. This is part of our mission, helping people recover the good news of Jesus. Now the second big truth is that this mission requires a team. Again, even Jesus needed help. A pastor will not do this on their own. A small group will not do this on their own. A church cannot do this on its own. We need pairs of people and teams of people, churches of people, a movement of people all on mission together. Third, the mission is costly. Nowhere does Jesus say everything will be awesome. That's the Lego movie, not the gospel. I think too many of us, we, we measure success in church by comfort and ease. If everything is going great and we feel good about it, we must be doing something right. And if it's hard, then we must be doing something wrong. But look again at what Jesus says. You will be rejected. You will be arrested. You might even be killed. Your family might hate you. The student is not above the teacher, nor, nor a servant above his master. To be sent is to suffer, is to suffer with, is to compassion with people. So it is costly, but then the last truth here, and this is really good news for us, we are not alone. Not only do we have a team with us, but God himself is with us. The same God who created all things, who has compassion on us, who suffered with us and for us, the same God whose son died on a cross to reconcile us and to make all things new. That God is with us and for us and values us more than anything else in all of his creation. And through him we have life 
abundant, everlasting life, and his spirit goes with us. So Jesus, in the first movement, he arrives. The second movement, Jesus teaches. This third movement, Jesus begins to take action. He travels around healing people, restoring them to God and to each other. He sees the tremendous need. And he looks around and says, we need help. We need more workers. And this is my favorite part of the story. They don't have a prayer meeting or, uh, you know, some sort of sign-up sheet or whatever. Jesus looks around and goes, oh, look, there's 12 of you. You go. <laughs> you go. I give you authority to do all the things that I have been doing. So he says, yeah, we need, we need help, but he answers his own prayer. As we look around and as we see the need in our families, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our state, in our country, in our world, we absolutely should pray for and ask for more workers. But the answer is right here. The answer is right here. We can do this. We are the next wave of unlikely heroes sent to help people discover and recover the good news of Jesus. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, this is a challenging passage for us, a challenging word. There is a, a, a tremendous cost in following you in, into mission. It's so much easier to sit on the sideline, to, to just kind of be an observer and watch what is happening. But to be a disciple, to be a follower of you, we are called into the action. We are called to participate with you. You look for workers and you point to us. And the good news, God, is you give us authority. You, you go with us. Your spirit is with us, speaking through us, working through us as we do this, as we take these risks. So there is a cost, but there also is a desperate need and the truth that you go with us out into this mission. God, I pray first and foremost for anyone here this morning who has been on the sideline, who has been uh, considering if this kingdom of heaven, this Jesus really is the answer to their deep and profound questions about life. I pray that you would move in their hearts to accept the good news that Jesus has died for them, has risen from the dead to overcome the separation between us and you. God, for the rest of us, uh, others of us, maybe again, we've been uh, coming for a while, we've been going through the motions. Would you remind us that we are not just here to fill a seat, we are here uh, to be sent out. Would you remind us that there is a desperate need for good news in our world and that you can use us to be the answer to those questions. So Father, give us courage, give us creativity, help us know how to respond, who to be talking to, who to be sharing with. help us to do this, to not just talk about it and think about it, but to actually go and do it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.